0: Dr. Will Wong here let's talk about the things most likely to kill you you know aside from doctors in the medical industry which claim about 300,000 lives if you combine the doctors mistakes with hospital mistakes with doctor cause disease and the side effects of drugs themselves for example aspirin kills about 18 to 22,000 people in the United States every year The medical industry itself claims 300,000 lives a year on average in the United States. Now, that's more than the number of people who die from cancer, the number of people who die from heart disease, and the number of people who die from diabetes. So, number one cause of death in the United States, the medical industry. Now then, let's look at the other major causes of death in America. There is heart disease, there is diabetes, and there is cancer, with each of them claiming a few tens of thousands of lives a year. Now, there have been various root causes proposed for each of those diseases. Some of them were right on, some of them weren't, but it turns out that most all of the reasons why we were told people get heart disease, for example, i.e. arterial plaque causing heart disease and strokes, or milk and dairy products precipitating diabetes, or cancer coming from unknown causes in the clear blue sky, Yes, yeah, sure. It turns out that the one common factor that most of the things that kill us are connected to is inflammation. Search has now advanced to the point where inflammation has been found to be the major cause of heart disease. Fibrin is a second major cause of heart attacks and strokes. And arterial sclerotic plaque is a distant third if it's in contention at all. So a good side question here is why are they still trying to sell you anti-cholesterol drugs? But that's getting away from my point. As we age and get stressed, our internal organs become inflamed. Think about it. When your bicep gets tired of work, what does it do? It stops and it rests. Can your heart stop to rest? If it stops to rest, you're dead. Likewise with the rest of your internal organs. Your liver is always working. Your brain is always working. Your kidneys are always working. Your lungs are always working. Since they're always working, and then we put ourselves into stressful situations due to work, due to life, Everything inside of us begins to swell. Everything inside of us begins to become inflamed. Everything inside of us begins to become dysfunctional. Now, learn this lesson. Irritation produces inflammation. Inflammation produces end duration. End duration produces death. This is the way we learned it in school. Okay. The irritation is life and stress. The result is inflammation. Now, inflammation produces end duration. What is end duration? End duration is fibrosis. Anything that is chronically inflamed will begin to grow scar tissue to surround itself, to armor itself up with. That scar tissue, if it grows in your kidneys, decreases kidney volume, decreases kidney function. If it grows in your lungs, decreases lung capacity. If it grows in your arteries as arterial plaque, decreases the lumen, the diameter of the artery. And then on top of that fibrin that grows in your artery, from being stressed or from being damaged, then gloms on the fat and the calcium to form arterial plaque. So without the fibrin there to begin with, there would be no arterial plaque. Also, excesses of fibrin float around the blood and they clog things up. So let's say you've got an adhesion molecule just waiting to glue itself onto something. It'll glue itself onto the fibrin. It will glue itself onto a platelet and then you have an embolite, you have a blood clot, you have something just floating around waiting to cause trouble, it'll get stuck in an internal organ, like your lungs, and create a pulmonary embolism. If it gets stuck in your brain, it's a stroke, an ischemic stroke, a dry stroke, as opposed to a hemorrhagic stroke. We'll talk about those later. If it gets stuck in a blood vessel in your heart, bingo, you've got a heart attack. If it gets stuck in your extremities, you've got phlebitis or deep vein thrombosis. So that one little bit of fibrin, or those little bits of fibrin, glued onto the adhesion molecules, which glued themselves onto platelets, can cause a variety of different things to go wrong, all from the same source. Now let's trace this back again. Irritation produces inflammation. The inflammation produces fibrosis. The fibrosis produces death. Now just to give you an example of how we all get fibrosis growing inside of us as we age... If you were in an anatomy class and you had a cadaver of an 18-year-old on one table and a cadaver of an 80-year-old on the other table and you took out their internal organs, you took out their liver, you took out their kidneys, took out their lungs, took out their brains, you would note that the internal organs of the 18-year-old were full, they looked wet, they were, had the consistency of very firm jello, you cut through them, it's kind of quiet. But firm. Now you cut through the internal organs on the 80 year old. Not only are they about one third the size of those of the 18 year old, but it feels like cutting through an Italian bread that's been left on the kitchen table for a week. I'm exaggerating. But you get the idea of how fibrosis hardens things. Now, along with that shrinkage, along with that hardening, comes a diminution in function. So as we age and our internal organs fibrose up, it diminishes their function, and in turn, as doctors used to learn in anatomy in med school, fibrosis is what eventually kills us all. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Think of every disease name that ends in an itis. Every name of every disease that ends in itis is related to inflammation. And we know now that there are plenty of diseases out there who don't have the itis suffix that still are linked to inflammation as their primary root cause. Now think of all the disease states that end in an osis, with the possible ex- exception of osteoporosis. All of the disease states that end in an osis are fibrosis diseases, diseases in which fibrosis is growing in an organ, fibrosis is growing in an area, that fibrosis is causing trouble. Now let's look at the most commonly used de-inflammatory agents, and let's see what's right and what's wrong with them. The most commonly used agents are the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Aspirin, ibuprofen, naproxen, relefin, Viox, Celebrex. Excuse me, Viox isn't around anymore because what did it do? It killed people. Oh, okay. Celebrex and the COX-2 inhibitors. Those are the most commonly sold anti-inflammatory drugs. What's wrong with them? What's wrong with them is that they actually promote the die-off of the liver and the kidneys. Now... The major cause of death from the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs is kidney damage, kidney failure, death from kidneys not working. Second major cause of death is intestinal hemorrhage. The lining of the intestines gets so thin that the intestines begin to bleed through their lining. Loss of blood is great. Patient dies. Third major cause of death from the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs is liver damage, leading to liver failure. Liver performs up to 25 different functions. If any of those functions go south, you go south. But why and how do the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs do this? Well, the NSAID drugs work by stopping the production of little buggers called circulating immune complexes, some of which are also called cytokines. There are good cytokines and bad cytokines. The non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs can't Tell the difference, it stopped production of all cytokines, including the cytokines that run your kidneys, the cytokines that detoxify your liver, the cytokines that maintain the intestinal lining in its thickness and integrity. So, in stopping the production not only of the pro inflammatory cytokines, but of the good cytokines as well, you're killing Peter to save Paul, and both of you are going to die fairly quickly. In the United States alone, 18 to 22,000 people die every single year from the regular use, not from the abuse, but from the regular use of aspirin, ibuprofen, naproxen, relefin. Of the COX-2 drugs, which are not supposed to have any of the anti-liver, anti-kidney, or intestinal effects of the COX-1 drugs, well, Vioxx, Celebrex, and Bextra have turned out to be causing heart attacks to be causing strokes, to be doing the things it wasn't supposed to be doing, like creating inflammation. Vioxx by itself killed 59,000 people and wound up landing in 139,000 in the hospital with heart attacks and strokes from all the inflammation it was causing to the heart and to the blood vessels. Does that make sense? These miracle drugs were not sufficiently tested before they were FDA-approved. And yes, we know, the FDA is the best government agency money can buy. Congressman Jack Kemp told us that back when he was Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Everyone who works at FDA came from the drug companies. When they leave FDA, they're going back to the drug companies. They know what side they get buttered on. I could go off on a whole tangent for an hour on this particular subject, but let me stick to the subject at hand. So then the next thing given, upline, If your inflammation is really, really bad, are the corticosteroid drugs, which for short-term use are actually pretty good. These adrenal hormones work very well at very quickly reducing inflammation. The danger comes when you use them long-term. Pregnisone, hydrocortisone, all have horrible, horrible, horrible side effects. Specifically, water weight gain to the point where it adversely begins to affect your heart and... It changes the shape of your bones. Everyone who uses these drugs long-term becomes moon-faced. The bones in your skull get rounder and larger because the corticosteroids cause flat bone to grow. Also, if you've ever seen anyone who's been on corticosteroids for a while, the skin gets paper-thin. These people have severe hemorrhaging under the skin, and the skin gets so fragile that bumping up even gently against a piece of furniture will tear a flap of skin off. Now the natural health food folks are telling us, that the omega oils, the omega-3s, the omega-6s are wonderful anti-inflammatory agents. I could say a whole lot of four-letter words here, but let me put it to you in a kindler and gentler fashion that these guys are severely exaggerating. The actual anti-inflammatory effect of even large doses of the omega oils is comparable to less than that of a baby aspirin, if you're lucky. On the other side of the omega oils are the fact that most of them come from flax and seeds. Now, flax oil happens to have a six-digit estrogen figure attached to it, so that about four ounces of flax oil has the equivalent of... Now, you ready for this? Okay... 379,380 micrograms of estrogen. And it's not a weak estrogen either, as you've been told. It's not an estrogen that will block bad estrogen. It's just plain old estrogen acting exactly like estradiol does. Remember back when you were told the lie about soy being a weak estrogen? And soy only has 103,920 micrograms of estrogen per 4 ounces per ounce. 100 grams so here flax has three times more estrogen than soy does and it's supposed to be good for you ever wonder why most of the guys who are the great advocates of flax oil have fairly high voices they're all tenors or altos why there are no visible girlfriends or wives anywhere around them take a good look take a good hard look ask some good hard questions and see what the real agenda behind the flax craze is. But, be that as it may, Canadian Medical Journal, Nutrition and Cancer, in its article on what foods to avoid during cancer, has listed flax as the number one thing to avoid. The reason for that is that 99.5% of cancers are driven in their growth by estrogen. Now, isn't that interesting that the purveyors of flax never told you that? And now the latest in the anti-inflammatory craze, the statin drugs. You know, the statin drugs have failed miserably at preventing heart attacks and strokes. Many of the statin drugs themselves caused heart attacks and strokes. And death by liver failure, kidney failure due to glomerulosclerosis, and rhabdomyolysis was common with the statin drugs. You know, before the advent of the statin drugs, four people died worldwide a year from rhabdomyolysis. That's why your muscles begin to dissolve, clogs up your kidneys, kills your kidneys, and plots you're dead. After the advent of the statin drugs, rhabdomyolysis became actually quite common, with the first sign being that your urine turns brownish, almost black, as you begin to urinate away your voluntary muscle proteins. So now since they've so utterly failed at preventing heart attacks and strokes, they want to find another reason to still sell you this junk that can cause liver damage, nerve damage, and kill you faster than a heart attack or a stroke will. So now they're going to see that, or they're going to try to prove, that the statin drugs lower inflammation and try to find themselves another niche that they can sell these poisons for for a little while longer and take advantage of their money-making abilities. Now let's look at the only safe anti-inflammatory agent in the world, proteolytic enzymes. There are over 160 journal-published, peer-reviewed medical research papers to show that orally administered proteolytic enzymes reduce inflammation, lysoy fibrosis, that they actually have an absorption and that they have a therapeutic action. You know, it begs the question. If you don't have absorption, you're not going to get a therapeutic action. In every field from angiology to urology, systemic enzymes have been applied and they have been found to be useful. Now, let's talk about how they work. Let's cover the five primary actions of systemic enzymes, starting with inflammation. Inflammation is marked by redness and swelling. Inflammation is the body's way of telling you something is wrong initially, but inflammation can become chronic. And we see that with chronic inflammation, it breeds disease. Now, inflammation is caused by the immune system sensing an irritation. And then the immune system creates a little critter called the circulating immune complex, a pro-inflammatory cytokine to travel down to wherever the irritation is and create inflammation. Now, let's say you've got a bum right knee let's say you've got a torn anterior cruciate and a torn medial meniscus in that knee your body will create a circulating immune complex specific to your right knee won't go to your elbow won't go to your brain won't go to your heart won't even go to your left knee it will go to your right knee only and this is via the science of protein tagging the uh, Nobel Prize, I think in biology, was won in 1999 for the discovery and the development of the theories of protein tagging. So this little pro-inflammatory cytokine swims down to your right knee, stays there, and is joined by more pro-inflammatory cytokines as your immune system just keeps on churning them out, and your knee gets swollen, and your knee gets red, and your knee gets hurting, and your knee is dysfunctional, not only because you've got the instability from the initial injury, But now you've got the inflammation there, bucking things up. Now, some folks think inflammation is good. Inflammation is the body's sign to keep from using an area. So we need to not stop inflammation. These people are idiots. You know, if you can't figure out that a place is hurt, there's something mentally wrong with you. You not only have the pain from the part that you tore, sprained, strained, ripped apart, or otherwise hurt, But now, on top of the pain of the destroyed and mangled tissue, now you've got this inflammation setting in. That's supposed to be good for you? Yes, it brings a whole lot of blood, and that blood, these people say, is supposed to help speed the healing. Let's see what that blood actually does. That blood takes the tissue that's already torn and pulls it further apart. That blood and lymph fluid balloons an area to the point where it becomes so totally dysfunctional that you might even block circulation as in an anterior compartment syndrome of the leg. You can block circulation and the whole dang limb can become gangrene. Is that a good inflammation? I put it to you that the people who think inflammation is a good mechanism have never had any and they've certainly never dealt with patients who have chronic inflammation. We have chronic inflammation because inflammation breeds itself. After a while, your immune system will not just be reading the irritation from the injured tissues. It'll be reading the irritation caused by the inflammation itself, and it'll shunt down more pro-inflammatory cytokines to further inflame the area and to make the inflammation spread. Let's take the point of having an overworked liver. You've got inflammation in the liver because you're drinking alcohol because you're not taking your B vitamins, because you're stressing all to hell and working 24 hours a day. Okay? That inflammation now spreads to your pancreas because inflammation, like fire, spreads. And what happens to your pancreas? Your pancreas now becomes diabetic. So you, now you have a sick liver and a sick pancreas. Okay, from your pancreas, where does it spread? It spreads into your kidneys, and your kidneys begin to get fibrosis, glomerular sclerosis inside of it. And that glomerulosclerosis begins to cut back on your kidney function, which in turn begins to kill you. Am I making my point here? Inflammation, like wildfire, spreads. There is no such thing on God's green earth as good inflammation. And anyone who thinks inflammation is a useful tool for healing has never had or has never had to deal with patients with either acute inflammation or with chronic inflammation inflammation, because both of them can lead to some very bad things. Okay, so now that we put those silly notions to rest, let's continue. 60 years of research and 60 years of clinical experience in German, Central European, Japanese, and Asian medicine show that orally administered proteolytic enzymes do get absorbed despite their huge size here in the states it's still taught that enzymes don't get absorbed that they get broken down into more simpler proteins that does not happen and anyone who is still teaching that silly notion is 60 years out of date but then again lots of stuff in american medicine is 30 to 40 to 60 years out of date but let me not go there either let me stick to brass tacks and stick to the subject of enzymes The enzymes get absorbed through the intestinal wall, go into your bloodstream, and while they're there, again, due to the science of protein tagging, the enzymes can tell the difference between what's floating around inside of you and can tell the difference between an endogenous protein, like your muscles, your internal organs, and an exogenous protein, i.e. a parasite, a piece of steak, or... A pro-inflammatory cytokine that your immune system has tagged as an exogenous protein so that your enzymes would know not to let too many of these guys accumulate and would eat them away and would help to control the inflammation. Think of how inflammation was back when you were a kid. You twisted an ankle, swelled up a little bit. Your pro-inflammatory cytokines came in. Your pancreas was making a tonne. Of proteolytic enzymes back then you were using proteolytic enzymes up by the tablespoon and it shunted a good many of these proteolytic enzymes down to the injured area ate away at most of the pro-inflammatory cytokines and began the healing process because it's been shown in German research that proteolytic enzymes help to speed the healing of tissue so you were a kid how long did that twisted ankle last an hour Fifteen minutes? How long was it before you were back in the game? That same level of twisted ankle after the age of 27 would lay you up for three weeks. Why? The body makes a finite amount of proteolytic enzymes in a lifetime. We use most of those proteolytic enzymes up by the time we are 25 to 27 years old. At 27, the body begins to dole the proteolytic enzymes out, with an eyedropper instead of with a tablespoon because it knows that if it maintains the level of proteolytic enzyme output that it had for the previous 25 years, you'd be dead by the time you were 40. Now, before any of you people, especially you docs, tell me that the body doesn't work that way, think of dopamine. We make a finite amount of dopamine in a lifetime. When you use up your stock of making dopamine within three days of making your last drop of dopamine, you're what? You're in a pre-morbid condition, yes, 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 doc, and you are what? You're frickin' stone-cold dead. Remember that mechanism? If you don't, please refer back to your guidance physiology. Well, the same thing goes for your pancreas. The cells in your pancreas will only work for so long before they begin to die out, just as the cells in the substantia nigra of the brain will work for only so long before they begin to die out and dwindle in their number. And when the cells in the substantia nigra begin to die out, somewhere around 40, 45, you have a 1 to 10 percent loss of dopamine making every year until death. Likewise, at 27, which we know from the physiology textbooks is the beginning of old age, we have a downturn in the production of proteolytic enzymes by the pancreas. And as the cells reach their limit and begin to die out and they don't reproduce as fast, you have a diminution in the level of proteolytic enzymes seen in the body with each consecutive year. And we know, we can see and feel the effects of the diminution of our own production of proteolytic enzymes because we can feel the inflammation setting in. How many folks out there don't feel worse at 35 than they did at 25 or 27? How many aches and pains begin to set in? How many of those old athletic injuries have come back to revisit you? Look at the downturn in your physical appearance between 27 and 35. Look at what's happening to the wounds when you cut yourself. Back when you were a kid, you'd cut yourself, and the wound would heal with a beautiful, pliable, almost invisible scar. Now what happens? The scar is bumpy, lumpy, hard, full of scar tissue, full of fibrosis, full of keloids. And it's ugly. It's inflexible. Why? We'll get to that when we touch on fibrosis. But the main reason why is because we are making less and less and less of our own proteolytic enzymes than we were before. Guyton told us that old age began at 27, but it took Dr. Wolf and Dr. Ronsberger to explain why. Now let me briefly here give you a little bit of history on the use of enzymes in medicine. In 1912, Dr. John Beard would use an extract of freshly killed sheep pancreas to treat pancreatic cancer, and he had a very high rate of remission. When the docs in London tried to replicate his studies, they used pancreases from sheep that were not freshly killed. They'd been hanging around for a while, and they got no results, so they declared Dr. Beard a quack. What they did not know is that the freshly killed sheep pancreas contains a ton of pancreatin, which is the primary enzyme of the pancreas, and pancreatin contains trypsin and chymotrypsin, both of which eat cancer cells. But no one knew anything about this back then because enzymes had not been isolated. It took the 1920s and the work of Dr. M. L. Rothi in India to first isolate the enzyme papain. And then from papain, Dr. Rothi isolated a number of other enzymes. And to this day... Almost 100 years later, the Rathi family in India runs the most scientific enzyme production facility in the world. These guys are outdoing the Germans and the Japanese in making proteolytic enzymes and in making enzymes not just for medicine, for supplementation, but also for industry. Okay, we come to the 1930s. And Dr. Max Wolf. Now, Dr. Wolf was an OBGYN who had seven PhDs on top of his MD. He was an Austrian doc who practiced in New York and he did research on enzymes at Columbia University. By the 1950s, he had put together a concoction of proteolytic enzymes that he used to fight inflammation and fibrosis. At that time, he was working for Pfizer, and he tried to sell the concoction to them. They didn't want any part of it because, being natural, it couldn't be patented, and they didn't see how they could make any money off of it. Yes, they said your studies are very valid. Yes, the stuff really works, but we can't make any cash, so we don't want to know about it. So Dr. Wolf got together with Dr. Carl Ronsberger. They bought a company called Mucos Pharma in Germany, and using the enteric coating technology developed by Dr. Leiserwassum at Mucos Pharma, They came up with the world's first proteolytic enzyme supplement. Along with that, they did about 160 pieces of research on the application of systemic enzymes in every field, from blood flow to inflammation to renal fibrosis to sports medicine. You name it, they likely did a study on it. Now, all these studies were peer-reviewed and journal-published, And they were the beginning of the systemic enzyme research field. Right now, there are almost 200 studies in the field of systemic enzyme research validating both the anti-inflammatory and the anti-fibrotic effects of orally administered proteolytic enzymes. And currently, in the United States alone, there are some 70 to 100 different proteolytic enzyme supplements available on the market. Most of those are clones of other supplements. Some are rather unique. Some of them work. Most of them don't because the people who package them together don't know the difference between alive and a dead enzyme. They don't know how to protect them. They don't know how to coat them. They don't know how to properly package them. They basically don't know how to keep them alive. Or their raw material suppliers that they're buying the enzymes from don't know how to keep an enzyme alive. So by the time they get the raw material to make the finished product with, the stuff's dead anyway. But let me not get into that either. So, from a market of only $55,000 worth of proteolytic enzymes sold in all of the year 1998 to the point now where most of the enzyme making companies, except for us, are making at least six to eight million bucks a year, we have seen an explosion of systemic enzymes in both the US and the world market as the world realizes that there are better ways of dealing with inflammation. And that it isn't true that there's nothing that can be done against fibrosis except for surgery. Okay, I went on a tangent here. Let me get back to the anti-inflammatory effects of the enzymes. The enzymes are very well known and have very well proven, not just in research, but in 60 years of actual clinical use, they have been shown to fight inflammation without side effects. This is very, very, very important. I mentioned before that every other anti-inflammatory agent in the world has dramatic, serious, and even deadly side effects. The enzymes are non-toxic. Unless you're allergic to pineapple, the worst thing that can happen if you took an entire bottle of enzymes, anybody's enzymes, is you'd get the runs. It's the worst thing that can happen if you took a whole bottle or even half a bottle of acetaminophen or ibuprofen or naproxen or even aspirin? Well, the worst that can happen is kidney failure, liver failure, or death from hemorrhaging intestines. I'll take the runs any day over any of those things. So again, in terms of inflammation, the enzymes only have their action by eating away the pro-inflammatory cytokines that your immune system is creating to inflame its own tissue. It doesn't work by keeping the body from making cytokines, so it doesn't shut down your liver, your kidneys, or your intestinal wall creating. It doesn't work in the same mechanism as corticosteroids, so it has none of the side effects of the corticosteroids. Systemic enzyme use against inflammation is an absolutely safe, short- and long-term way of fighting acute and chronic inflammation. It is a very natural way of fighting inflammation because systemic enzymes... Proteolytic enzymes are your body's own first line of defense against inflammation. And if you were still five years old, you'd be pumping them out by the handful. You would need to take any extra, which brings me to another point. Even doctors forget this fact. I keep on being asked, Well, Dr. Wong, if you take the enzymes, won't your body stop making them? And sometimes the question is asked as a serious concern. Sometimes I'm asked that question by some doc who wants to show how smart he is. And my answer is, you dumbass, don't you remember the difference between the endocrine system and the exocrine system, endocrine and exocrine? Open your guidance uh, once again, and let's review. The exocrine system is made up of your pancreas, your tear ducts, your sweat glands, your saliva glands, and your digestive juices. When we drink water, we don't stop making saliva. When we wash our face, we don't stop making tears. When we take a shower, we don't stop perspiring. Likewise, when we take proteolytic enzymes orally, we spare our own production for another day. We don't stop making them because they are not part of the endocrine system. They are part of the exocrine system. Remember? given the fact that systemic enzymes have been used widely in Europe, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, Japan, and a good bit of Asia, with over 160 million patients having had systemic enzymes administered, prescribed to them, if there was something wrong with them, if they did something wrong, if they created damage, if they created a feedback mechanism to stop production, if they did anything bad, we'd know about it by now. It would be documented in the clinical experience. As a matter of fact, the enzymes are so non-toxic that the Germans fed human research subjects the equivalent of 3,750 of their particular brand of systemic enzymes a day and fed them to these test subjects for a few weeks, and the results were very, very, very clear. The test subjects were a heck of a lot healthier after The few weeks of taking all those systemic enzymes, and they were before. All their blood work is better. The inventories of how they felt were better. Everything showed that they had improved in their state of health and that nothing bad had happened to them. And research in both Germany and in India and in Japan all show that proteolytic enzymes are completely non-toxic. They have no LD50 or LD100 so they are safe for use against chronic inflammation long-term and at high doses. So whether it's an athletic injury with severe and acute inflammation, or it's a long-term inflammation, like those that can cause heart disease or diabetes or worse, the use of systemic enzymes, varying the dose, varying the period of time the patient is on it, can work marvelously at lowering or eliminating the inflammation without the need to use the damaging drugs now, do not confuse anti-inflammatory effect with a pain-killing effect. The non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs not only lower inflammation via the mechanism of stopping all cytokine production; they are also, in and of themselves, painkillers. And while most pain is caused by inflammation, not all pain. Is caused by inflammation so we can reduce the inflammation and thereby reduce the pain but don't think of the enzymes as a pain killer because they're not now dosing enzymes against inflammation varies from product to product depending on the actual enzymatic action of the product and for this don't read the label the label will tell you nothing about what the product is Actually does. The label will tell you what the raw material suppliers told the guys who packaged the enzyme about what is supposed to be in the raw material. It's more than likely that the guys who actually packaged the product that you're looking at and the bottle never tested the raw materials to see if they actually had that level of enzymatic action. There's a bit of trust here between the people who are making the finished product, and their raw material suppliers. And there has to be. If you don't trust them, don't use their raw materials. But there are some raw material suppliers who aren't very good at making the raw materials that they're making. And while they're absolutely fresh and out of the vat, their enzymes might have a certain particular level of enzymatic action. What's stated in the C of A certificate of analysis might not actually be the enzymatic action had in the product at the particular moment in time when the product maker is packaging their product either into a tablet or into a capsule. Is this confusing? I'm sorry if it is. But don't go by the label comparing one systemic enzyme product to another. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. You've got to try it. You've got to actually put it into your body and see if it works. Now let us quickly deal here with a common misconception. It is a misconception usually had by medical doctors that enzymes are only used for digestion and that the only use of a proteolytic enzyme is to help you digest protein in the intestines. That ain't so, folks. Proteolytic enzymes are biocatalysts. They are things that help other things to work. They speed up chemical reactions. The four or five proteolytic enzymes that you either make or you eat, create what we call the enzyme cascade. They, in turn, create between 2,000 to 3,000 other enzymes, which, in turn, create between twenty-five to 35,000 other different enzymatic reactions in the body. Without enzymes, it would take you about 15 minutes to bat your eyelid and a half an hour to bend your elbow. The chemical reactions for all that would be extremely slow without the enzymes. Digestion is the absolute last thing an enzyme will do once its teeth, an enzyme is a lock and key mechanism, once the teeth of the enzyme have been worn down sufficiently that they can no longer adequately function for its primary actions, then the enzymes are shunted down into the pancreas where they are in turn used for digestion and then eliminated from the body. They still have enough punch to help you break down your protein in your food. Now, here we come to the use of digestive enzyme products, trying to make them into systemic enzyme products. Most of the digestive enzyme products out there are food-grade enzymes. Now, nothing wrong with food-grade, but nothing great about them either. Food-grade enzymes are usually fairly weak, always uncoated or unprotected by an enteric coating or an enteric matrix, which means that once they come in contact with the hydrochloric acid in the stomach, they get destroyed. Enzymes are extremely pH sensitive. They work well in alkaline environments. They work well in environments from about 7 pH to about 8.5 pH. We know that they do function at 6 pH pH. And some enzyme developers are actually culturing enzymes to be active in as low as 4 pH, which is about the acidity of battery acid or Coca-Cola. Now, the hydrochloric acid in your stomach is 2 pH. So the enzymes usually get killed by high levels of hydrochloric acid unless they're enterically protected. An enteric coating is a coating of either sugar or an inert polymer that encases the enzyme, and protects it so that it can get through your stomach and into your intestines where the environment is alkaline. Your duodenum is about 6.5. The rest of your small intestine into your colon is about 7 plus pH, and that is a very friendly environment for the enzymes to have their action in and absorption through. Now, it has to be said that your body in general is composed of seawater and should be in the sevens in terms of pH. We can tell a very sick person by their pH being in the fives and fours. All cancer patients, for example, are in 4-point-something pH. Now, I have to touch on one fad that the health food industry is going through now of advocating a very high pH level of things to get the human body into. I have to say that any pH much over 8.5 is going to be Caustic, it's going to be as damaging to the body as a high acid would be because you get to either end of the pH scale and you have a caustic eroding effect. Ammonia is 9.2 pH. So anyone who will tell you that they have 10 pH water, stay away from that stuff. Also, anyone who tries to measure pH via the kidneys is absolutely frickin' nuts. The kidneys and the stomach are supposed to be Acidic. A high level of alkaline, as is seen with excess protein ingestion causing a high ammonia load in the kidneys, cause the kidneys to scar over. Glomerulosclerosis sclerosis of the kidneys causes lack of renal function. It also boosts your blood pressure. It's one of the two things that increases blood pressure. You don't want your kidneys to get fibrosed over. Now, I am not an advocate of eating low protein levels, but... If you eat too high a protein level or try to over-alkalinize your bodies and in turn alkalinize your kidneys, which is supposed to be getting out uric acid, well, if you overalkalinize your kidneys, you will get a kidney fibrosis and you will have a diminution in kidney function. Now, most folks won't notice a diminution in kidney function unless it's severe. But, again, my point is here. Measure your pH from your saliva. You can measure your pH from a drop of blood, but measure your pH from your tears or your sweat, but don't measure your pH levels from urine. Urine is supposed to be acidic, and if you over-alkalinize the body, trying to get your urine to be alkaline, your kidneys will suffer. Now let's get back to talking about enzymes here. The natural health food folks will tell you that there are herbs that are natural COX-1 and COX-2 inhibitors that can fight inflammation. And... I have to tell you that we have to judge an herb by its action. Just because it's natural don't mean it's safe. Opium and cocaine are natural, don't mean they're safe. Now, turmeric and boswellia have been highly touted as COX-2 anti-inflammatory agents. White willow bark is where aspirin came from. It's a COX-1 anti-inflammatory agent. If they work on the same mechanism of action... As the COX-1 and COX-2 drugs, what makes you think that if you take a bunch of this stuff, it won't have the same side effects? Oh, but it's natural, you'll tell me. Just because it's natural doesn't mean it's safe. Look at the mechanism of action. Now, you know, the Germans never figured out the mechanism of action where the enzymes were having their effect on inflammation, took them years to figure it out, and for the exact mechanism of action, that wasn't figured out until about 2004 by a doctor called Mrs. Dr. Pakti, who is the head of pharmacology at the Urala Med School in Mumbai, India. She figured out exactly where in the inflammatory process the enzymes do have their action, and the enzymes eat away. They physically munch down on pro-inflammatory cytokines. The flowchart on this can be seen at the new research segment of EnzymeScience.com, which also happens to be the largest repository of systemic enzyme research on the Internet. Now, also, I've gotten enough questions from folks thinking that their inflammation is special. It's in a certain area that no one else has ever addressed. Nothing can be done about it, and they need something different. Well, you know... Inflammation is inflammation is inflammation. The pro-inflammatory cytokines that are tagged for that particular area are all tagged as exogenous proteins. So the enzymes will work on any inflammation anywhere with no qualifiers. We even know for sure that the enzymes can get past the brain-body barrier by the effect that the enzymes have on brain tumor patients and on patients with spinal stenosis. So the enzymes will work globally. They will work systemically. In other words, they will work body-wide against all types of inflammation anywhere. Now let's get to the second largest killer of man, fibrosis. Most of you likely haven't heard this before. Think about, again, all the diseases that end in the word osis. Those are fibrosis conditions. For example, arterial plaque. When an artery is damaged, strained, or somehow lesioned, it develops a patch over the lesion consisting of scar tissue. That scar tissue forms a spiderweb-like framework around which fat, calcium, and heavy metals glue themselves. They glom themselves onto this framework, and bingo, you've got arterial plaque. You've just broken a limb. You've just had surgery. What happens afterwards? When you get out of the cast, do you have full range of motion? No. Fibrosis has grown over the joint, causing immobility. And you have to break that fibrosis, just like you have to break the fibrosis in your hamstrings to be able to touch your toes to regain full range of motion. Post op? Many patients grow fibrosis, especially in the abdomen region, after a C-section, after abdominal surgery, and that fibrosis grows into the abdominal viscera, into the internal organs, and begins to strangle them off to the point where you've got to go back and get another surgery just to cut through the fibrosis that's choking off your intestines. Or you had that wound, or you had that plastic surgery, and it didn't quite heal right, and you developed this big knobby thing of fibrosis called a keloid, because your body wasn't making sufficient proteolytic enzymes to get the excessive fibrin out of the wound as it was healing. Let me explain how wounds heal. First part of wound healing, your body develops this framework, this spider web of fibrin, across the wound, from one end of the wound to the other, and then through that spider web of fibrin. Think of that spider web of fibrin as the steel structure in a skyscraper then through that spider web of fibrin grows the epithelial tissue to fully heal the wound. So fibrin is considered soft connective tissue, and it is the framework for the epithelial tissue that grows through it. Now, think of our skyscraper. You've got the structural steel. And then on that structural steel, you put in the floors, you put in the concrete, you put in the glass, you put in the whatever to make a building. Now, what would happen if you put in so much structural steel that you couldn't put in the floors, you couldn't put in the walls, you couldn't put in the glass, you couldn't even put in the chairs and the desks and everything else you need to make a proper building? Well, that's about what happens when you develop a keloid. The body sends all this fibrin through the wound more than you need for the structure to heal itself. And the body depends on the proteolytic enzymes to find the excesses of fibrin because the body knows exactly how much fibrin is supposed to be per square inch of every part of your body. It's in your programming. And the enzymes are supposed to eat away at the excess of the fibrin so that the tissue can grow through well and you've got a beautiful, almost invisible wound. When you develop a keloid, you've got this big knobby thing hanging there because you didn't have the enzymes inside of you to eat away at the fibrin to make the wound heal properly. Let me tell you a story. I was speaking to this plastic surgeon. He was in his 50s, and for 40 years he had a Robin's egg-sized keloid on his left hand. He had broken one of his long bones in the hand, it had come through the skin. And right at the knuckle side of the hand, the posterior aspect of the hand, he developed a keloid, and it had been there forever. He personally started using systemic enzymes with his patients to prevent the formation of keloids with them, and he was taking them himself for some arthritic conditions that he had. Well, about three to six months into taking the systemic enzymes, he gives me a phone call, and he tells me a story. He had always had this keloid on his hand, and then one day he was brushing his teeth, His left hand was braced up against the sink, as folks normally do, and he looked down on his left hand, and the keloid wasn't there. He had not noticed the thing slowly being liced away, but it was so obvious when it wasn't there, because it was this big knot on top of his hand for 40 years, he was so excited that he immediately, right after he brushed his teeth, got on the phone and gave me a call. Now, to go back for a second and touch on the issue of arterial plaque for a moment, we had a call from this gentleman who had had one side of his carotid arteries rotor rooted out. He was due to have the other side rotor rooted out for severe growth of arterial plaque. I forget his degree of occlusion, but it was greater than 70. And he got the flu. He had to wait and postpone the surgery until he got over the flu. Well, certain things happened, and he did not get to have the surgery until about six months later. When he went to do the prep work for the surgery... His doctor did a Doppler ultrasound, again, to try to determine the size, position, and degree of the occlusion of the blockage in the other carotid artery. Well, he couldn't find anything. And then he went over all the other arteries he knew where they were blockages, and again, they couldn't find anything. This fellow had been on systemic enzymes for the better part of six months, again, to try to cope with some inflammation from his arthritic conditions, and the lipase and the proteolytic enzymes in the systemic enzyme had lysed away, had eaten away all of his arterial plaque, and he didn't have a single occlusion anywhere that his doctor could find on Doppler ultrasound. In another like story, spoke to a gal a good number of years ago whose dad had severe clogging of both of his carotid arteries. He was getting almost no blood to his brain. He had a 95 plus degree of occlusion in his carotid arteries. He was not conscious during the day. They wheeled him around in a chair, and when he was conscious, he was incoherent. He was babbling. Couldn't say a full sentence, couldn't get out a complete thought, and then he'd go back to sleep again. Well, his daughter got him on high doses of the systemic enzymes we had available back then, and In six months, he went back to Johns Hopkins to get his degree of occlusion measured because now he was awake most of the day. Now he was fully conscious most of the day. Now he could make complete sentences. He would have complete thoughts. He would have entire conversations with his kids. And from 90-some-odd percent occluded, he was now only 60-70 percent occluded. And when I spoke to his daughter again some months after that, he was even less occluded. And the doctors were astounded because they had done nothing, drug-wise or surgically, to open up this man's carotid arteries. Now, let's look at the fibrosis that happens with normal aging. As we age, our bodies become inflamed. And that is made worse by the estrogen dominance we all get, guys and gals all get, round about the age of 40, 45, although these days we see it happening in folks as young as 35. Now, you postmenopausal gals will tell me, I don't make estrogen anymore. Actually, you do make estrogen, and estrogen is all that you're making. You are estrogen dominant because even though you have a lowered level of estrogen production, you're not making progesterone anymore because you're not making babies. You're not making testosterone anymore because you don't have to be horny because you're not making babies. So without making testosterone or progesterone, estrogen's all you've got left. Now, any guy over the age of 40, 45 is so estrogen-dominant that I guarantee you that if you did hormone tests, he would have more estrogen floating around in him than his wife does. This is a period of life when guys go from watching Conan the Barbarian to somewhere in time. This is why really older guys cry at commercials. Commercials. And as we know from our experience with HRT, as we know from our experience with birth control pills, as we know from the combined medical experience with estrogen, estrogen produces fibrosis. Now, if you tag on all of the extra estrogen that we're getting from soy, from flax, from black beans, from Every seed, every pod, every bean and every pea is a mini uterus and therefore is estrogenic. You know, we've just found out that soy has a ton of estrogen. Well, guess what, folks? Flax is three times more estrogen than soy. And all those estrogens are combining together to form inflammation and fibrosis. Folks who are obese, their own fat cells are making more estrogen, and that is the reason why medicine is saying that obese people make hormones to produce inflammation. But they're not telling you what the hormone is, because they don't want the liability of telling you what the hormone was if you found out that estrogen causes not only weight gain, as we know from HRT and birth control pills, but estrogen also causes inflammation. As a matter of fact, I will go as far as saying that estrogen is the hormone of planned obsolescence and death because it is the hormone that leads us to the inflammatory and fibrosis conditions that take us to the point of death. So when I spoke about that 80-year-old cadaver with the shrunken organs and the fibrosis all laced through it, we were talking about someone who got that way because of estrogen dominance, causing inflammation, causing fibrosis, bringing about whatever disease went and killed them. So up to this point, medicine has tried to prevent the formation of keloids. It has tried to prevent the formation of fibrosis by fighting the inflammation. But now we know that you can't use any of the medical anti-inflammatory agents long-term because of the harm that they do. So how do we fight fibrosis? Well, up to now, surgery has been the only way of getting rid of excess amounts of fibrosis. Ah, let me touch on one more thing. I almost forgot to mention one of the most important forms of fibrosis, which is excesses of fibrin and fibrinogen in the blood. Again, as we age because of the lack of proteolytic enzymes, a lot of fibrin is found floating around in blood. Now, that fibrin is good. It's waiting to help piece you back together again should you have an injury. It's waiting to rebuild your soft connective tissue inside of your body. But when you have too much of it, It sticks itself to the adhesion molecules, and then those adhesion molecules on top of the fibrin glue themselves onto platelets, and bang, you've got an embolite. You've got a blood clot, and that can cause everything from phlebitis to deep vein thrombosis to a dry stroke or heart attack. So what can you do about all this fibrosis? What can you do about the adhesion molecules? What can you do about any of this stuff because medicine says there ain't no cure for it again only medicine in the united states says there ain't no cure for it we can lice away at excesses of fibrin we can lice away at excesses of fibrinogen we can lice away the adhesion molecules that we don't need via the use of systemic enzymes Given enough months and enough dosing of systemic enzymes, we can lice away, we can eat away at post-operative scar tissue, at keloids, at arterial plaque. We can lower our level of fibrosis within our internal organs, especially the kidneys. You know, one of the things that I like doing with kidney cyst patients or with glomerulosclerosis, sclerosis, with kidney fibrosis patients, is to tell them to take a tinkle, but don't flush. Wait a half an hour... And go back, maybe with a flashlight, and take a look at what's floating at the top of the water there. You'll see little things that look like tiny bits of fiberglass. That's all the fibrin that has been eaten away from the glomeruli that is now floating in the urine because the body got rid of it. Now let me explain something here. The glomeruli are the filtering fingers of the kidneys. And I want you to think about your fingers sweating because that's about the way the mechanism is. Your blood pressure forces fluid through these fingers and the fluid virtually sweats through these little fingers and then drops into your kidney. The fingers are the filters for the fluid. They filter out the uric acid and the metabolic wastes from the blood. Now, what would happen if you put a partial rubber glove over your fingers. You wouldn't be able to sweat as much, would you? The sweat wouldn't get out. So what would your heart have to do? Your heart would have to increase the pressure on your bloodstream to force the same level of fluid through a smaller filtering space. Your kidneys demand a constant level of inflow and outflow in order to maintain proper health. In order not to dry up, because the drier it gets, the more fibrosis it gets. The the wetter it gets, if it gets too wet, then it gets backed up, it develops infections. So your kidneys don't like it to be too wet or too dry, they want to be just right. And in order to maintain that just right moisture in the face of glomerulosclerosis, then it needs to increase the blood pressure to get the same amount of fluid filtered through a smaller-sized filtering medium. And this is the second reason for high blood pressure. By the way, the first reason for high blood pressure is occlusion in the peripheral microcirculation system. In other words, you've got little tiny fibrin clogs in your little itty-bitty blood vessels in your arms and legs. And, you know, something, the enzymes can take care of that, too. One of the messages we always get from gals who've had poor circulation, cold hands and feet, who start using the enzymes, is that they tell us that they feel this itching in their skin, like a thousand ants are under it, or they might have an ache, or they might have this pins and needles effect. And then all of a sudden, within a week or two, gosh, their husbands don't recoil when they go to warm their feet on them anymore because their feet aren't cold, their hands aren't cold, they're pinker, they have better circulation. And you could show this, actually, through imaging that the limbs do have better circulation. On top of that, once the blood vessels in the peripheral vascular system have been opened, guess what? Blood pressure drops. Now, if you combine that with building miles and miles and miles of new blood vessels via strength training exercise, you've got a slam-bam double whammy of a combination for reducing caused by peripheral vascular resistance but getting back to fighting visceral fibrosis. When we use systemic enzymes, for example, with a liver cirrhosis patient. Now, the liver is the most regenerative organ in the body. The kidneys won't rebuild. Your brain won't rebuild. Your heart won't rebuild. Your thyroid will not rebuild. Your liver will rebuild. So we can use the enzymes to lyse away at the scar tissue, the fibrosis. That's part of cirrhosis we can use the lipase in the enzymes to eat away at the fatty deposits that have grown in the liver. If we throw in B-complex vitamins, if we throw in zinc at 100 to 200 milligrams a day, if we throw in protein at one gram per kilo of body weight, we can cause that liver to spur its regeneration. Now, over and above that, if we do IV ozone on that sickle liver, it will heal itself faster than anything you've ever seen. And I have personally known of two liver transplant candidates who avoided needing the transplant because they did such a therapy. Now let's touch on some of the fibrosis conditions. Let's start with fibromyalgia. Right now, fibromyalgia is not classified as a fibrotic disease initially, It was classified as a fibrotic disease because the in vivo muscle biopsies that were done on the tissue that was hurting found an excessive amount of fibrosis in the tissue. I can also tell you that all fibromyalgia patients are severely estrogen-dominant and have a high level of markers for inflammation, otherwise known as C-reactive proteins and homocysteines, in their blood, showing that they have a high level of inflammation to go along with their high levels of estrogen and high levels of fibrosis. Now, as most any fibromyalgia patient will tell you, their pain cannot be quenched by the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, corticosteroids, or even the opiates. Why? This is the reason why most MDs think that these patients are absolutely raving nuts, because... Everything they throw at it that should take away their pain isn't. But they're not thinking. They're not remembering a kind of pain that cannot be taken away by any of the pain medications. They're not thinking back to their cardiology, for example. In cardiology, a patient who's had a heart attack is not given pain meds, even though the pain in his chest is so bad. And the reason why he's not given pain meds is because the docs know it's not going to do a damn bit of good because the pain is caused by ischemia. Ischemia is a lack of oxygen and adenosine triphosphate. That's the sugar that our body runs on. When you lack oxygen and adenosine triphosphate, you get pain. The best example of this I can give you is something you've all done. When you were kids, you all put strings or rubber bands around your wrists, and you cut off the circulation to your hand. What happened to your hand? First it went numb, right? Didn't feel much. But then as you tried to move it, it began to ache. And the longer you kept restricting the blood flow while you were trying to move, the more it ached. And the worse the pain got. That is the pain of ischemia. You weren't getting any oxygen. You weren't getting any more adenosine triphosphate. Your body was anoxic. That tissue part was anoxic. And it was screaming at you. Right at that moment in time, you could have mainlined heroin. You could have injected heroin into that aching hand, and it wouldn't done a damn thing. Because the pain of ischemia cannot be relieved by anything except the restoration of adenosine triphosphate and or oxygen. Okay, let's go to fibromyalgia. We have a patient with an excessive amount of inflammation and an excessive amount of estrogen and we know they're going to grow fibrosis by the fistful in their voluntary muscles due to the inflammation and due to the estrogen. So we throw in the systemic enzymes and the systemic enzymes begin to lice away at the fibrosis. the systemic enzymes begin to lice away at the fibrin plugs occluding the microcirculation. the enzymes begin to open up the circulatory channels and relieve the restrictions that are placed on that tissue. And within a few weeks, what happens? Pain's gone. And the reason it's gone is because oxygen and adenosine triphosphate are getting to the affected areas. If on top of that we throw in 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams a day of a magnesium citrate to relieve the muscle spasm, you get most of what is ailing people with fibromyalgia. Now, I have to throw in a caveat here. Sixty percent of fibromyalgia patients are actually not fibromyalgia patients. They are Munchausen's patients. They want attention. They want to make their families and their loved ones jump. They are using their sickness to manipulate lollygag and gold brick. The fibromyalgia patients I'm speaking of will do anything to get better, including the exercise that is needed to build more blood vessels to bring more blood to the affected areas. But not the gold brick's not the Munchausen's patients. As soon as they feel themselves getting better, they will quit doing that, claim more sickness, go doctor hopping again, and badmouth you would all get out because they don't want to get better. They're making what we call in medicine secondary gain from being sick. So the fibromyalgia patients I'm referring to who have great success with the enzymes and with the magnesium are the 40% who do Desperately want to get rid of their condition because they want to get back to their real lives. Now let's look at another place where enzymes can be crucially effective in helping with the problems had. Let's look at the estrogen-driven women's fibrosis conditions of endometriosis, uterine fibroids, ovarian cysts. Now endometriosis can get so bad it can grow into the abdominal cavity, into the lung cavity, and even up into the brain. Ovarian cysts, it's said, are caused by androgens, male hormones, but the androgen in question is dihydrotestosterone. It's the androgen that gives gals the darkened mustache and the little whiskers on their chins. That androgen is actually an analog of estrogen and not of testosterone. If it were testosterone, these gals would be horny as heck, but they're not. If it were testosterone, these gals would have great muscle tone, but in general they don't. If it were testosterone, these gals would have beautiful heads of hair, and a good many of them don't. DHT is the same analog of estrogen that causes men in their middle age and senior years to swell their prostate, to lose their hair, to grow hair on their backs and ears while losing the hair on their heads. DHT is not had by non-estrogen-dominant men. You won't find a young guy 17, 18, 19, 20 with DHT. They've got real testosterone, they don't develop the DHT stuff until they get into middle age and old age. But with gals and their estrogen levels, they can grow DHT all the time. As soon as they hit menstruation, they can start making DHT. And that's where the endometriosis comes from. That's where the uterine fibroids come from. That's where the ovarian cysts come from. That's where fibrocystic breast disease comes from. And for these conditions, if we use an aromatase inhibitor, If we use the systemic enzymes, if we use a topical progesterone, we can arrest, and most of the time, with fibroids, it's about an 80% success rate. With the other conditions, it's somewhat less, but we can both arrest and reverse the conditions to the point where many women completely get rid of their fibroids. Let me tell you a story. I was out on a lecture tour, and I got a phone call from an MD gal who was absolutely furious, She had started using systemic enzymes, and her breasts hurt. She had had fibrocystic breast disease for two decades, and her boobs hurt, and she wanted to know why. She was so bleeding angry, so she called me on day one. I wasn't there. She called again, left a message on day two. I wasn't there. Called again, left a message on day three. I wasn't there. Got home by day four, but I got home late. She had left another angry message. So by the time I started filtering through my messages, and I finally called her back, was a few days later, she wasn't angry anymore. She had discovered that the ache in her breasts was the effect of the enzymes lysing away at the fibrin that comprised her cysts. And 80% of the cysts in her right breast were gone, and about 50% of the cysts in her left breast were gone. Now, for most gals, unfortunately, it doesn't work that fast. And for most gals, you also have to throw in an estrogen blocker, an aromatase inhibitor, and a progesterone. And we have developed these products to go along with our enzymes for these particular conditions. What I'm saying is that all the things that they had told you were previously untreatable or treatable only by surgery, or they actually did the worst thing in the world. They gave you more estrogen to try to manage the conditions. And as you know, as you gals who've been through it, that extra estrogen only made the fibroids larger, only made the endo more extensive, only made the Exists worse if we treat it as a multifaceted condition and we treat it in a multifaceted manner, coming at it from all the different driving forces, from the force of the estrogen and canceling that, from the lack of progesterone and adding that, from the formation of the fibrosis and lysing that. If we address all of the issues combined, then we can get to the root cause of what's causing these things to happen and grow in the first place. In natural medicine... We try not to treat symptoms. We try to get to the root cause of things and eliminate the root cause so that not only do you not have the symptoms, you don't have the condition anymore either. So whether it's a fibrosis that has grown in from old age and wear, or whether it's a fibrosis that's happened from trauma or surgery, or whether it's a fibrosis that is happening due to hormonal unbalances and dysfunctions, the enzymes don't care the enzymes will eat away at that fibrosis. Again, the only caveats are, given a working enzyme product and a sufficient quantity of enzymes taken. Now let's quickly touch on the last three functions of a proteolytic systemic enzyme. Systemic enzymes clean the blood. The blood is not only the river of life, it's the river of garbage. It's the river through which cells and organs dispose of their garbage and dead material. Enzymes improve circulation by eating the excess fibrin that causes blood to sometimes get as thick as ketchup or yogurt and creating the perfect environment for the formation of clots. We talked about this before. All of this material is supposed to be cleaned out by the liver on first pass or the first time it goes through the liver. But given the sluggish and near-toxic state that most everybody's liver is in these days, that seldom happens. So the sludge remains in the blood, waiting for the liver to have enough free, working enzymes to clean out, to eat away all the trash, all the dead debris, all the excessive fibrin, all the sedimentation that's in the blood. These days, that can take days or sometimes weeks. When systemic enzymes are taken, they stand ready in the blood to take the strain off the liver by cleaning excessive fibrin from the blood, reducing the stickiness of blood cells. We talked about this before. The enzymes will eat away at the adhesion molecules. These two alone will minimize the leading cause of stroke and heart attacks, which is blood clots. It will break down the dead material small enough that it can immediately pass into the bowel and from the bowel right out of you. It will clean the FC receptors of the white blood cells, the FC receptors are the little grabbing hands that tear apart germs and stuff, and improve the white blood cell's ability to fight off infection. A white blood cell attacks a germ with its FC receptors. I want you to think about these little claw hands like a, like a lobster or a crab almost on this little round cell. And all these FC receptors go after the bug, go after the germ, and they tear it apart. And then the FC receptors hang on to that debris that they just tore apart the, F- the white blood cell goes to the liver, the proteolytic enzymes clean this stuff, eat away this stuff from the FC receptors. Then that white blood cell goes back into the general circulation again to fight and kill another bug. But if it takes a long time for the enzymes to clean away the dead debris, the dead germ debris from the FC receptor, how long is it going to take for that white blood cell to get back online and instead of being a garbage man, go back to being a soldier? The higher your level of proteolytic enzymes are, the faster that white blood cell can go from being a dustman back to being a soldier. Now, in this vein, we have to warn folks who are using Coumadin, Warfarin, or Heparin, the prescription blood thinners, not to use systemic enzymes unless you are on medical supervision because the enzymes help these drugs to work faster and better. In Germany... They wean patients off of these drugs and onto the enzymes. And the process of doing that takes a few weeks' worth of doing and a bunch of pro-time tests as they winnow down the drug and increase the enzyme. They take a pro test, winnow down the drug again, increase the enzymes again, take another protime test until they get to the point where the patient is where it should be in terms of blood viscosity. So unless you have that kind of supervision and you're on warfarin, coumarin, or heparin do not use systemic enzymes. Now, the next thing the enzymes do is that they act as an adaptogen modulating immune function. If the enzymes find that the immune function is down too low, it will boost it up. If the enzymes find that the immune system is up too high, it will downshift it and it will eat away at the antibodies the immune system is creating to attack its own tissue. Germany uses systemic enzymes almost exclusively in the treatment of autoimmune conditions, of MS, of lupus, of rheumatoid arthritis. They rarely use the very side-effect-prone and even deadly drugs we use here in the States against all those autoimmune conditions. Now, I have to say that they've also done research in Germany and Eastern Europe on the use of of systemic enzymes with transplant patients who are getting immune-suppressive drugs, and it has been found that the enzymes do not undo the immunosuppression, even though they can, in some instances, act as immune system boosters. The enzymes do not undo those drugs, and in transplant patients who have used systemic enzymes, their transplants have much less in the way of scar tissue growing through them, and they last longer. For example kidney transplant patients who are diabetic. In other words, the diabetes has killed their own set of kidneys. They got another donor kidney. It goes in. The fibrosis usually grows back in and kills these patients within three years. So typically, diabetic kidney transplant patients only last an extra three years. With the use of systemic enzymes, I personally know of diabetic kidney transplant patients who are in their seventh or eighth year of survival, and they are doing just grand. Now, the last thing that systemic enzymes do is that they are mild antivirus and antibacterial agents. A virus replicates in the body via latching on to your DNA and replicating itself. When a virus takes over your cell, that cell no longer belongs to you. It belongs to the virus. And if you think of an hourglass, when 50% of your cells belong to the viruses, you're dead. Now, a virus latches onto your cells via its exterior protein coating. It's called an isoprene bond. And when that coating glues itself onto your cells, and then the virus eats through your cell wall, bonds to your DNA, it makes more of itself. It replicates itself, and it increases what's known as the viral load. Anything that can prevent that isoprene bond from happening will reduce your viral load. Well, the enzymes see viruses as an exogenous protein, which is exactly what they are. It will begin to eat away at the exterior protein coating of a virus, rendering that bit of virus inert. The Germans found when they fed large doses of systemic enzymes to their HIV patients that their overall viral load plummeted. And by good amount, I'm talking to up to two or 300 pills a day of that particular product that they were using. When we use systemic enzymes with chronic fatigue patients who happen to be chronic mononucleosis patients, we see that their level, their titers for their Epstein-Barr virus goes down. So we know that this effect happens. The other thing, the other way of fighting bugs is fighting bacteria. Now, bacteria is an exogenous protein. When it floats through the system and runs up against a proteolytic enzyme, the enzyme recognizes it as a bacterial agent as an exogenous protein and simply eats it now as I said these actions are mild but when combined with antiviral agents such as such as isoprenicin such as valtrex when combined with antibiotics what the researchers have found is that there is not only a greater increase in the absorption and utilization of the medications, but they can almost cut the medications that were needed to be prescribed in half because the enzymes are doing about half the work. It has been the case for nigh on 50, 60 years in Germany, Central and Eastern Europe, and in Asia, that antibiotics are routinely blended with proteolytic enzymes because they know that when you blend them with the proteolytic enzymes, there is an increase in the absorption and the utilization of the antibiotic. And here I have to say that though we want to see the systemic enzymes taken on a fairly empty stomach, it doesn't have to be an absolutely empty stomach. What we try to keep the enzymes away from is a lot of protein, because when taken at the same time as a lot of protein, the enzymes will go into digesting that protein and not get absorbed through the intestinal wall and into your bloodstream. Although I have to say this is not a hard, fast rule because we know from the use of systemic enzymes on birth trauma that when the Germans administered the crushed-up enzymes that, that they had in goat's milk or in formula to newborn infants because they had a traumatic effect, they had inflammation somewhere, especially in the head, that the enzymes did their work marvelously at reducing inflammation even though they had been given with a drink containing a good bit of protein. But in general... As a general rule of thumb, try to take the enzymes in between meals. If you can't figure out what in between meals means, as many people can't, think about this, 30 minutes before or 60 minutes after a meal. That is enough of a spacing that you won't put the enzymes together with the bulk of whatever protein you're eating, and the enzymes will have a chance to absorb and get throughout your body. Also, the question arises as to how much enzymes are necessary to be taken in order to have an effect on any kind of a condition. And here we have the go-no-go no go law. I will tell you plain flat out that some is not better than none. Some may be the same as none. If we were dealing with an infection and antibiotics. If you had an infection and you were given antibiotics and the infection did not go away, either you're on the wrong antibiotics or you're not taking enough of them. And if you do boost the amount of antibiotics that you're taking, guess what? The infection gets killed and goes away. If you're taking vitamins and you're doing the regular RDA-type vitamins, you're not getting a damn thing because you're not getting a physiologically meaningful dose of vitamins to create a physiological change. In other words, you're not taking enough of anything to stimulate anything else. That go-no-go law applies for enzymes. If you take below a certain level of proteolytic enzymes, nothing happens. If you take above a certain level of proteolytic enzymes, everything happens. And this is one of the problems with the older formulas of systemic proteolytic enzymes. You have to take an awful hell of a lot of them without naming names. Of the first product I used to use for all my various aches and pains, for all my various old jock injuries, for all my skydiving injuries, all my martial arts injuries, all the damage I had done to myself from years of sparring and weightlifting, I was taking 60 to 80 tablets of that particular product a day. Of the second proteolytic enzyme product that I used, I was taking 30 to 40 capsules of that particular product a day. I got sick of doing that. So we developed our own systemic enzyme product so that I could take less of it and to do that I had to make it as strong as I possibly could you know when I was in germany studying enzymes i asked the fellow who owned the particular enzyme company that i was there studying with i asked him doctor could we make this product any stronger could we add more enzymes per tablet and he said yeah but we wouldn't sell as many pills so i came at this from an entirely different point of view i personally wanted to take Less pills. I personally wanted to have the strongest, most kick-ass proteolytic systemic enzyme product in the world, and I wanted to make it affordable. So getting together with a pharmacologist who had been the founding pharmacologist at the first proteolytic enzyme company in Germany, getting together with him, we developed a product based on not only the old formulas, but on modern enzyme science. And it was the strongest proteolytic enzyme on the planet. And then a couple of years on, I improved it to the point where I almost cost myself money because some folks found that they could take even less of a dose than they were taking before. It would do them as much good as the higher dose of the old product. And they found that a bottle lasted them longer. And honestly, when we reformulated this essence, I knew that that might happen. But we did it anyway. Our standard recommended dose for zymescence isn't 20, 30, 40, 50 a day. Now, most bottles of most of the other products don't tell you those doses. They tell you you can make do with one to three a day. You go ahead and try that and see if anything happens. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. You keep on taking those products, keep on increasing the dose every day until you feel it doing something for you in reducing your inflammation or until a few weeks down the road you see that it's cut back on your fibrosis. But of our enzymes, one capsule three times a day is most all anybody will ever need, unless you have a building fall on you or you get hit by a bus. And don't think that you could look at the numbers on a label of a systemic enzyme product and figure out which one will actually work and which one is the strongest. The proof of the pudding is definitely in the eating. I challenge you, try everyone else's enzymes first. Take as much of them as you think you need to take to have a quenching in whatever inflammation you've got, to have a change in whatever fibrosis conditions you have. And after you get tired of doing that or you run out of money, try Zymescence at three capsules a day. Now, in all honesty, we do have some folks using the Zymescence who have had to use six capsules a day. Those are usually either severe Trauma patients, very acute inflammation patients, or really badly off RA patients in the middle of a flare-up. Usually, those patients can go back to the three-a-day within a few weeks. Also, on the matter of taking a systemic enzyme with other supplements or with medications, you can take them concurrently. You can take them at exactly the same time, and the enzymes will increase the absorption of any vitamin, mineral, or herb or any medication taken along with the enzymes. Now, I have to say that every vitamin and every mineral is a coenzyme and a cofactor. They are things that help enzymes to work. And one of the reasons why vitamin-mineral supplementation so often fails is because the enzymes aren't there that the vitamin-minerals are supposed to latch onto in order to have an effect. So for these and all the other reasons we've discussed, try the zymescence. It is the single most important supplement anyone could ever take, and it should form the cornerstone of any supplementation or any wellness and health program. And on that note, I wish you all God's blessings. Be well, and I'll chat with you again next time. Bye-bye.